Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, Genesis chapter 4. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we want to hear from you. We're not satisfied, Lord, with just a couple little thoughts about God or our opinions or one person's ideas. We want the Word of God. We want all of it, every verse. And Father, I pray that as we meditate tonight, even as we have all week long in reading these two chapters and now together, Father, we pray that you would reward those who have come with that sincere heart seeking you, wanting to hear from you, wanting to give worship to you. And so we give you our full attention without distraction, without movement, just the movement of our heart inclined toward you. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Genesis covers 2,500 years of history. Chapters 4 and 5 cover 1,500 of those 2,500 years of history. So we get a lot of generations A big sweep in these two chapters. Chapter 1, we saw the beginning of the universe. In chapter 2, the beginning of the human race. In chapter 3, the beginning of sin. In chapter 4, the results and the progress of that sin. And on into chapter 5, as we see more of that result as we read that phrase that will be repeated over and over again in the fifth chapter, and he died, and he died, and he died, etc. Every generation, fulfilling what God said would happen, them dying off. So chapter 3 is the root of sin. Chapter 4 is the fruit of sin. This is now the result of it. Adam is cast out of the garden as is every human being since Adam. Adam tasted it. Adam and Eve were there, walked with God in the cool of the day, enjoyed fellowship, bliss, perfection, utopia. But they forfeited it. And now all of us ever since have been consigned to being outside the garden, longing to get in. What Adam did was so pervasive and so invasive to the human race that it required what Paul referred to as the second Adam to undo the curse. Will we ever get back in the garden? Oh, yes. In heaven, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven and the new earth, will be the paradise of God with the tree of life described there in chapter 21. But I believe even before the new heaven and the new earth, before the new Jerusalem, there will be a thousand years of a restored, renewed earth and the conditions of that millennial kingdom on the earth will replicate what it was like in the Garden of Eden. But it took Jesus to fix what Adam blew big time. And so that's the message of the Bible in a nutshell. I really love the uh, outline that Dr. G. Campbell Morgan gives for the book of Genesis. I've shared it with you before. Chapters 1 and 2, generation. It's the beginning of the universe, the beginning of man, etc. Generation. And then chapters 3 through 11, degeneration. As we see sin and the results of sin... And then chapters 12 through 50, regeneration as that plan picks up through Abraham and his descendants. So, there has been a progression. It's outlined and articulated so beautifully by Paul in one verse in Romans chapter 5. By one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. So that death spread to all men, for all have sinned, for death reigned from Adam to Moses. So sin entered, death entered, 
death spread and death reigned, and we are seeing that unfold before our eyes. Well, in chapter 4, where it says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, the chapter opens happily enough. So far, so good. She's pregnant with their firstborn child. Now, they had never seen a pregnancy before, right? They had no reference point. Uh, Neither Adam nor Eve. So imagine the amazement as Adam watched his wife begin to grow. And what he must have thought. And perhaps what he might have said. Honey, uh, I notice you've been gaining a little weight lately. What's up with that? Or Eve... What's all these little socks you're knitting? I don't know if she was doing that. Or, what do you mean you want pickles and ice cream? The whole experience was so new to them. Now, it does say that Adam knew his wife Eve. That doesn't mean they were introduced here. God's saying, Adam, this is Eve. Eve, this is Adam. Shake on it. The word know here in Hebrew speaks of to know with intimacy. They knew each other intimately. They had sexual relations that produced this child. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, which is a word, a name that means gotten or acquired. Or at least it sounds like the Hebrew word for acquired. And she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now, typically, in ancient cultures... It was the husband who named the child. That's just the way those cultures came down. Here, Eve names the first human born, names him Cain, saying, I have acquired or I have gotten a man from the Lord. And I believe that's because of the expectation of who this child would be. I am certain that Adam and Eve believed this was the fulfillment of the promise that God made in the previous chapter. In verse 15, notice in chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So when Cain was born, she said, I've gotten him. Or this is it. This is the acquisition. This is the one who will deliver us and bring us back to the garden and fix all that the serpent and me and us have undone. I don't think there has ever been a higher hope for a child than the hope that Adam and Eve had for Cain. In fact, some scholars believe the translation is even more forceful. That rather than saying, I have acquired a man from the Lord, they insist on the literal Hebrew that could be rendered, I have acquired a man, even the Lord. That there was that high expectation that this would be the Lord's Messiah, Deliverer. Well, they were so happy when that baby was finally born and Adam And Eve held that precious little package in their arms thinking, this is it, I've gotten him, this is the deliverer. Not knowing they were holding the first murderer in their arms. This child would not be what they thought this child would become. Now, we don't know for sure, and I'm not going to press the issue, but the language, and I will admit, it is very scarce as to giving us information here. It could have an inference that this child was spoiled. I mean, think about it. The first child ever, ever born. Now, they didn't have parenting classes, Adam and Eve. No one could teach them. They were it. They couldn't consult with friends who'd had babies before or their parents since they had none. So they just had to raise Cain. And they did. They were able. (laughs) You know, okay. Verse 2. Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, Abel 
means breath or vapor or that which ascends. It could speak of something temporary or it could have the idea of something ascending heavenward up toward God like when a sacrifice was made in the Old Testament and the smoke went up, or later on incense in the tabernacle, and it was ascending toward God as a form of prayer to God. Maybe it was the hope that this child will ascend to God and be a spiritual child. Maybe even there was some favoritism, as I mentioned, of Cain over Abel. This is the one. This is the deliverer. I've gotten him. And then the second child, Abel, may he be as spiritual as his brother. If he's the deliverer, I hope this one at least ascends and is spiritually ascendant like his brother. We don't know for sure, but the language certainly could imply that. That they were showing favoritism, which will really be a setup for what is going to happen. Now, the story goes on to tell us that Abel was a keeper of the sheep, so he became a shepherd. Cain was a tiller of the ground, so he became a gardener. It took two different roads, but they were brothers. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel for his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Admittedly, again, the text leaves a lot out as far as wording is concerned. So we have some hints. First of all, notice the phrase in verse 3, in the process of time. Literally it is, at the end of days. And infers that there was a set time that God prescribed they come and offer him a sacrifice. The inference is that God had given instruction, no doubt to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve passed it down to Cain and Abel, that God required a sacrifice when they come and make an offering of worship to him. And it was no doubt based upon what they had seen in the Garden of Eden. You take an animal. You kill the animal. You offer that to God. That's what we saw the Lord do in covering our own sin, boys. But here it says that Abel brought the firstborn of the flock and their fat, but he didn't respect Uh, Cain in his offering, because Cain, verse 3, brought an offering of fruit out of the ground unto the Lord. Now, what does it mean he respected it? I think it means he received it. Now, this is the way I'm picturing it. Again, it may not be accurate, but this is how I'm picturing it. Do you remember when the prophet Elijah was on Mount Carmel and had the, the little contest between the prophets, the false prophets of Baal and himself? And the Lord was pleased with what Elijah had done so that fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice on the altar. It could be that fire fell from heaven and consumed this animal sacrifice, thus signifying that the Lord respected what Abel had brought, but nothing happened with what Cain had brought. Now I know some of you are going to read this and think, that's not fair. He brought the best that he could. He brought what he had. And it was probably even more beautiful, don't you think? Don't you think that the offering of the ground, uh, uh, grains and plants, would, would be arranged in such a way that it was certainly more beautiful than dripping blood on a platter or on an altar of a dead animal? And, and I'm sure that Cain would bring the sacrifice. He was a gardener and he thought, Ah, oh, this is great. Look what I've done. Look what I have made. Look how I've arranged it. I'm going to bring this before the Lord. He's really going to dig this. Abel, on the other hand, wasn't so excited. Because he was a shepherd. 
And I don't know if you've ever seen the taking of a life of any animal. It is certainly not pleasant to see any creature die. To see the throat slit of a lamb and it bleed out and lose its life. It would have made him sad. So you could say, it's not fair. Look how beautiful it was. And it was the very best he had. Ah, but it had no blood. That's the whole point. Now, the answer is given as to this whole dilemma by turning to the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to turn there and I'm going to read to you a verse which gives us the answer and tells us what's going on. This is Hebrews 11 verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it speaking, uh, and and uh, through it he being dead still speaks. So it says he did it by faith. Now there's three reasons or three ways that Abel's sacrifice was superior to Cain's. Number one, the kind of offering that he brought, the kind of offering, it was a blood sacrifice. And he did it by faith. That is, I believe by faith that a substitution must be made. An animal must die on my behalf. As I bring this offering before the Lord, I'm making a testimony that I believe in the necessity of substitutionary atonement. And that's the idea behind verse 4, by faith. He did it by faith. Cain brought what he had, but he left out the blood. So the kind of sacrifice. Number two, the quality of sacrifice. The quality. There is no mention of the quality of Cain's offering. There is a mention in Genesis of the quality of Abel's sacrifice. He says he brought the firstlings and their fat, or literally, even the fattest ones. In other words, he brought the very best he had to God. Nothing was too good for God. He didn't go out to his flock and say, okay, which is the weakest, scrawniest, sickliest lamb that's going to die anyway? I'll give that one to God. He gave the best to God. That happens to be a pattern of giving to the Lord throughout the Scripture. Rather than seeing some dumpy old thing that we have in the house that's really not doing us any good. We've used it. In fact, we've broken it. And to look at that broken down piano or, or broken piece of furniture and say, let's give it to the church. We've destroyed it anyway. It's not serving us anymore. It's not really good enough for our house. Let's give it to the church. Surely they can use it. The idea is to give God the best. When David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, he was looking for a place, and a high place in Jerusalem, which is today the Temple Mount, was at that time the threshing floor of Arana. And he went to him and said, I want to buy your land. Arana said, you're the king, you're doing it for God, I'll give it to you. And David said, no, I will not offer to the Lord burnt offerings from that which cost me nothing. It's got to cost me, I've got to feel it, it's got to pinch So you give it to me, you sell it to me for full price and I'll buy it and we'll build a temple and God can have sacrifices at that temple. So the kind of offering, the quality of offering, and third, the character behind the offering. Now watch this. Verse 5, he did not respect, back in Genesis 4, verse 5, he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? He was, he just, it was moping. He was bummed out. God said, why art thou bummed out? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Did you notice the wording? If you do well, if you live right, 
If you're practicing truth in your own personal life, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is lying or crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. God never separates the worship that you bring from the worshiper that brings whatever it is you bring. He always looks at the heart of the worshiper. He looks at the worship, but he attaches the outward form of worship, whatever it might be, the raising of hands, the singing of songs, the giving of time, the giving of treasure, and he looks at a person's heart. And here, Cain is showing his true colors. He's showing his heart. He's angry. And he's got murder in his heart. The seed of murder is in the heart because the seed of murder is what? Anger. Anger. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said in times of old, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, if you're angry at your brother without a cause, you've already committed murder. Cain was a murderer in his heart long before Cain was a murderer with his hands. And so he brings the sacrifice, he brings the worshiper. Now keep this in mind, the Bible never talks about Cain as if he's some heathen, some pagan. He's a worshiper. He's a false worshiper. He's bringing his own stuff that would bring a sense of pride. And he's angry. He's got the wrong attitude. So God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Jesus in Matthew chapter 15, quoting Isaiah, spoke about the worshipers in Jerusalem, in Israel, and said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draws near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. It's interesting. We judge worship outwardly. The same group that would say it's not fair for God not to respect what Cain brought is the same group who would look outwardly at worship, I believe. See, let's say you take two people in a worship service and you see one person with the hands raised and they're even swaying a little bit and they're singing loudly and clearly and tears are rolling down their cheeks. There's such an intensity. We would look at that and say, boy, that person is really worshiping. But if we catch somebody out of the corner of our eye and their hands are sort of like this or their hands are down and they're just sort of saying the words but they're not singing too loudly, we might judge them and say, that person needs to learn how to worship. i got to get this crowd motivated. But what is worship? It all begins with the heart. And it's possible to raise the hands and sing loudly and be intense while you're thinking they're going to notice me as my hands are raised and as I sing really loud and especially with these tears, they're going to think, I'm really worshiping. Now you've entered into a danger zone, right? Or maybe they're thinking, look at that outfit that she's wearing. Or, I don't like this song. I never really liked this song. Or, this is going way too long. It's possible to say something with our lips, but not be engaged with the heart. Do you remember the story Jesus told of the two men that went up to the temple to pray? The Pharisee and the tax collector. And Jesus said, the Pharisee, listen to this, the Pharisee prayed thus with himself. Interesting description. Is it possible to pray not to God but to yourself? Uh Uh-huh. You pray it, you say it out loud, and you listen to yourself and you go, you know, that was pretty good. That was a pretty cool prayer. This is what you pray. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And he got so impressed with himself. Wasn't any true worship in that at all. Cain brought worship But the character behind the worship was lacking. The kind of offering he brought, the quality of offering that he brought, and then the character that's behind it. All those three would make God accept one and reject the other. 
Continue in verse 7. And if you do not do well, then sin is lying at the door. That is crouching at the door. Picture a, a wild animal crouching, ready to spring into action. But you should rule. Its desire is for you. That is to control you, but you should rule over it. Now, nothing has changed. It's true in our lives. Sin is always crouching at our door. For some of us, it's crossed the threshold and it's inside the house. And we've given it its own room. Desiring to control, but it says you must rule over it. There's a book out, put out a few years ago, called Death in the Tall Grass. It was written by a big game hunter in Africa who spoke not only of hunting wild game, but that there were a certain kind of lion that hunted human beings. Certain kind of predatory cats that were... That were Brilliant. They worked with stealth. They got the taste of human blood, and he said they would creep into the camp at night, walking over several people who were sleeping to target their prey that they had targeted in advance. Incredible stories. In fact, one large cat, he said, had killed over a hundred men and would stalk them. And they're fast. Once they crouch and they spring, they can cover 100 yards in three seconds. So, if sin is crouching at the door, close the door. Or if Satan is knocking at the door, would you just say, Jesus, would you answer the door for me? Instead of opening the door and saying, okay, there's the devil. I rebuke you, devil. And start carrying on a conversation with him. Hide behind Jesus. Don't deal with it yourself. You ain't got the power. Sin is crouching. Its desire is to control you, to rule you. It's the battle we have, the flesh and the spirit. But you must rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. By the way, aren't you impressed that God, instead of writing off Cain after he brought the wrong sacrifice, and it wasn't by faith, that God didn't just write him off, but he approached him and talked to him and reasoned it out. Saying, hey, why are you so angry? See, he didn't have a right to be angry, and he could stop the anger. It was his choice. The problem wasn't outside of him, it was within him. And and it could be fixed, it could stop. So God is reasoning with him, warning him, something bad's about to happen, buddy, you've got to master it, you've got to control it. But he didn't listen to him. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now there's the first murder. And it is not second degree murder. This is not negligent homicide. This is murder in the first degree. This is murder one. And he becomes the prototype of murderers and manslayers who would come after him. Now violence has entered the human race in a powerful way. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So we have a lie and a revelation. A lie, I don't know. You know exactly where you left his dead corpse. And it's a revelation that his heart had become so callous, so hardened toward his own fellow man, his own brother, that he would ask in an aloof, snippy kind of a way, Am I my brother's keeper? Answer, "Uh uh-huh. You are your brother's keeper. Especially your own blood brother. You're to protect his life. You're certainly not to take his life. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. At the point that he let his anger take control and he let sin master him, that which was crouching at the door pounced upon him, he gave in to the temptation. At the moment he let sin master him and did not rule over it, he became part of, in a spiritual sense, the seed of the serpent that was opposed to the seed that would bring forth the deliverer. 
And that battle goes on. Now, in the New Testament, there is a warning using Cain as an example. In the book of Jude, verse 11, it speaks about those who have gone the way of Cain. Now, the way of Cain um, seems to have been a pattern. I mean, the fact that the Jude would call it the way of Cain, it was a known, established pattern. And this is what I think it means. Somebody who goes the way of Cain rejects God's solution for the sin of mankind, which comes through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Somebody who would reject that and say, I'm going to come to God the way I feel like it with my own good works or my own religious affiliation. I'll do it my way is the way of Cain. Further, to reject the admonition of God in the scripture, to refuse to repent like Cain did when God told him, why are you angry? Don't let that happen. Is to go the way of Cain. So it's become a pattern. And many people in our world have gone the way of Cain and rejecting God's solution for their issue. So he says, verse 11, God says, so now you are cursed from the earth. The earth has been cursed. Now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive or a wanderer and a vagabond you shall be upon the earth. So he was consigned now to a nomadic lifestyle, a wanderer. In the ancient cultures, the ancient Sumerian, not Samaritan, Sumerian of that Persian Gulf area, Mesopotamia area, To be banished from the land was a phrase that was used. It was one of their greatest fears. It meant to be turned away from your family. You can't hang out at home. You have to leave. You're banished to be a wanderer. So you're leaving the protection of your family. So he said, am I my brother's keeper? Now God is saying, no one's going to be your keeper. You're now a fugitive. You're consigned to wander. That nomadic lifestyle. And when you till the ground, it will no longer yield its strength for you. Do you realize that when Adam sinned, he he didn't just make it bad for all of us. He made it bad for the environment. I think the environmentalists should be down on Adam. Because the earth, the ground, the environment was cursed. It says that all of creation, Romans chapter 8, was made subject to futility. Not by reason of itself, but by reason of the one who subjected it in hope. All of creation, said Paul in Romans 8, all of creation groans and travails in pain waiting to be delivered. One day it will be delivered. It's called the millennial kingdom of Christ. The reason a millennium must occur is for God to fulfill that promise. Until then, creation groans and we groan. And we, we see its effects. Uh, entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, showing that matter is degenerating, or energy is actually being lost, thus matter is degenerating, is fully in play. Things tend toward decay and getting worse rather than order and getting better. Now look at verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Oh, Really? Greater than you can bear? Now, this is a case of self-pity when there should be repentance. I have to believe that if Cain would have said, Lord, I admit my wrong. I was angry and I did sin and it was murder. It was wrong. Please, God, forgive me. That God would have forgiven him. That's his character. That's his nature. But here... He's saying, punishment is worse than I can bear. No, it's not. In just a few chapters, God's going to say in Genesis 9, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. God could have killed him. That's what he deserved. He deserved capital punishment because if God gave humanity the right to exercise capital punishment, certainly God reserves the right to exercise it as well. But he didn't do it. So here's Cain disregarding the previous instruction of what sacrifice to bring. 
entering into anger, letting the anger push him down, he descended to the level of being a murderer. And now he says, it's worse than I can bear. (laughs) Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. What was the mark that God set on Cain? A lot of books written about it. We don't know. That's the best answer. You can conjecture all you want. It just says, a mark. Maybe it was a mark only God could see, sort of like invisible ink. God just says, you're a marked man. It could just simply be that. God made a promise. In fact, the word sign could also be translated pledge or promise. It could be simply that God made a declaration that you're a marked man and because of what you just said is a possibility, is true, I'm going to make sure that you're, you're marked, you're set aside. Or it could have been a physical mark of some kind. It wouldn't be the first. If you've read the Bible before, you're familiar probably with Ezekiel chapter 9. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God tells the prophet to go through Jerusalem, actually a man with an inkhorn, and mark on the foreheads a mark, a sign, of all of those that mourn or sigh over the wickedness done in Jerusalem, those who are brokenhearted because their culture is so decayed and so corrupt, and they go, oh, I hate it. I hate this sin that's around me. God says, find those people and mark them so that when I wipe this city out, they'll be spared. The second case of a mark on the forehead is in Revelation chapter 7. Remember that, 144,000? God said to the angel, mark them, put a mark, a seal on their forehead so that they would be protected during the tribulation period. So it could be either or, physical mark or simply a pledge, a declaration. Then Cain went out, verse 16, from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod. I find that when I preach, some people dwell in the land of Nod. (laughs) On the east of Eden. Nod means wanderer. This was the land that he inhabited called the land of the wanderer. And Cain knew his wife. Now, wait a minute. Where did Cain get his wife? It's always the big question. It's funny. There are predictable questions that people have in Genesis. They're so interested in this man's wife. Where did Cain get his wife? Well, look over chapter 5, verse 4. After he begot Seth, that is Adam, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. And (laughs) that's a long time to have a lot of them. So no doubt, and I have no problem with it, Cain married one of his sisters, which at that time wasn't a problem. It wasn't a genetic danger zone. Today, if you have close interbreeding, uh, there's all sorts of genetic problems that occur. The gene pool is polluted. It lowers IQ, among lots of other problems. But before pollution had fully entered the human race, this is close now to the very spring of life itself. This is the offspring of the first man and first woman. And so it was much purer then, and by necessity, he could have married a sister. Now, if you were going to drink water from the Rio Grande, would you rather go up to Colorado at the base of Mount Canby where the origin of the water is pure and fresh and drink from it there? Or would you rather drink from it in New Mexico or Mexico or Texas after it has run its course past several cities and absorbed the pollutants from those civilizations and animals. No way. And so too, the human race over time has been polluted as time went on, so the effects prohibit 
uh, for a lot of reasons, this kind of activity, but back then, not a problem. And he built a city. And he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now you go, oh, isn't that, isn't that sweet? What a, what a great relationship he has with his family. Now, don't be too quick. God told him he'd be a wanderer. Now he's trying to settle down and build a town. As if to defy the sentence that was leveled against him by God. Sort of like what will happen at the Tower of Babel. I'm going to build something that reaches heaven. To Enoch was born Erod. And Erod begot. Not a great word. It's a Bible word. Begot. If you have an old King James, begat. Mahujael and Mahujael begot Methushael and Methushael begot Lamech, seventh from Adam on the sign of Cain. Lamech took for himself two wives, and the name of one was Ada, the other name was Zilpah, or Zillah, and Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the harp and the flute. As for Zilhah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craft in bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Um, the first bigamist was Lamech. He had two wives. Now God said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined into his wife, singular. This is the first time... And it's in the line of Cain that two wives are taken by one man. So this is where it all started. He's the first bigamist. Now he has three kids. And one is the head of the Cattle Growers Association. He's sort of the the father of all those who are herders. The other is the um, music guild superintendent. Those who play harp and the flute. And the other one was a metallurgist. So... They're doing sort of what God had told Adam and Eve they should do. They should have dominion over the earth and subdue it. But they're now subduing it, not for the glory of God, but for the glory of self. Now, that's important to understand because this lineage is about to stop as far as recording its future. It's going to stop, and another one's going to pick up for obvious reasons. Then Lamech, verse 23, said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. I know a lot of guys that do that every night to their wives. He says, for I have killed a man for wounding me. Now this could be self-defense or it simply could be, you know, a guy injured me. He brushed up against me and it hurt a bit, so I killed him. See, at this point, it's very primitive. The the lex talionis has not been instituted yet. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, to limit vengeance. So he says, somebody hurt me, I killed him. Even a young man for hurting me, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Interesting that Jesus told Peter that he should forgive seventy times Seven. Or, some translations, 77 times. One is revenge, the other is forgiveness. Verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, appointed. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. As for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. I want you just to think about this. They had a child named Seth. That was a happy day for them. But up to this point, it was very sad for them. Adam and Eve lost two sons. They lost Abel. He was murdered by Cain. But then they lost Cain because God exiled him. So as parents, they lost both their children. But now Seth has come. Now a godly line. And we have in these two chapters the difference between the godly line of Seth versus the ungodly line of Cain. Now the line of Cain will be dropped off. Now the line of Seth will be picked up. 
because Seth is the one through whom God will send his promise, Genesis 3.15, son born of a woman who will eventually destroy the kingdom of the serpent, of Satan. So the godly line, the line of Cain, is given. And it says, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Or some translations suggest they began to call on the Lord by name. And the word Lord is Yahweh. They began to call on Yahweh by name. They referred to this one as uh, the God who is the I Am. They began to call on him by name. So, chapter 5 is the genealogy of the line of Adam through Seth. Cain is now dropped. Now we're picking up a godly, not a godless culture, and it will end with Noah, who is also godly, and the flood will be at his time. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, but he's in heaven now, but he wrote a, a, a tremendous amount of books that influenced me early in my Christian walk. And he talked about all of society being two humanities, two humanities. You're either in one or the other. And what he was referencing is something that St. Augustine wrote years before in in a great monumental work called The City of God. Have you ever heard of The City of God by St. Augustine? Augustine said that all of the world, all of the human race, is in one of two cities or societies, we would call them. One of two cultures. One that regards the love of God over the love of self, and the other one that regards the love of self over the love of God. And he drew many parallels to his day, including Rome, etc. But the city of God. And so here we see the two humanities, the two cities, by these two genealogies. It says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. So it's the... History of man, Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Now we're going to have a genealogy. And I know what you're thinking. Boring. I mean, what could be worse than reading names of people you don't know, especially names nobody can can pronounce, at least in English? That's boring. It's funny that some people would say a genealogy is boring, and yet... They'll pour over pages and pages of stock quotes and think it's cool. Or batting averages. You go, now you're talking. <laughs> now, a genealogy isn't boring if your name is in it. And what's great is now we have a genealogy where God is focusing upon those who are faithful to him. And I think God has special regard for those who are faithful to him. And more genealogy that includes faithful names are here than the unfaithful one in the previous chapter. I think that's a principle. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Those who knew the Lord spoke often to one another. And a book of remembrance was written for them in the presence of the Lord. It's as if God is saying, I write a special little book of remembrance for those who are faithful to me, who talk about me, who love to talk about me, and to remember me, I remember them. Beautiful idea. Now, as we go through this, it's a graveyard. No, we're we're sort of like walking past tombstones, and it reads, and he died, and he died, and... He died. You're going to read that phrase all the way through except for one exception. Who doesn't, a guy who doesn't die. He created them male and female, blessed them, and called them mankind. Or in Hebrew, Adam. They were called Adam. Not, they weren't called the Adamses. Or the Adams family. But just Adam. Mankind. In the day that they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. All the days of Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Now, I'm not going to deal again with the ages of people. I dealt with that when we were going through the creation story as to uh, the plausibility of people living up to that age with the the plausibility of a vapor canopy and the electromagnetic spectrum. I'll leave that for that study. 
Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. I just want to throw something out to you. When Adam was created on day one, how old was he? He was one day old. But did he look one day old? No, he must have looked like a full-grown man. What, 20, 25? Fully developed. So, in the first day of creation, there was an age factor built into Adam, as there was in the rest of creation. When God created birds in the sky and uh, animals on the ground, he didn't say he created eggs in a nest that hashed, he created the birds. When he created plants and trees... He created them with seeds so it could continue. So there was an age factor built into the unit itself. It just is fun to throw out. It brings up the possibility that God could have done that with all of the universe. I know there is a debate as to the age of the earth. Is it 6,000 years old? Is it 10,000 years old? Is it 20 million years old? Is it billions of years old? And, And there's a lot of different guesses. But God certainly could have done to the whole globe what he did to Adam or the birds or the plants, put an age factor in them that made them mature, even though they were much younger than that. So all the days of verse 8 of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years, begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalalel. And after he begot Mahalalel, Canaan lived... I said Canaan. Canaan lived 840 years... And had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canine were 910 years and he died. It's a dog-eat-dog world. <laughs> Mahalalel lived 65 years, begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. All the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. Now, I slow down for a reason. Begot Enoch. And after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. Did you know, just a little uh, interesting fact, that though Enoch is an Old Testament person, he's mentioned more in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. There's five passages altogether in the Bible that mention Enoch. Two of them are in genealogies, so the three of them that have real substance, are Genesis 5. There's some commentary on it here. Genesis 5, Hebrews 11, and Jude, verses 14 and 15. So there are three verses in the Old Testament and two verses in the New Testament. But if you count the words, 51 words in the Old Testament that speak of Enoch, 94 words in the New Testament. So more in the New Testament is written about Enoch than even in the Old Testament, this ancient, interesting man. Okay, so verse 20, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and retired. No, no, it says he lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. Now, that that would imply that he hadn't always been walking with God, but now something happened that caused a turning, uh, a desire to, to walk with his Creator. And the only event that we can find that caused that was the birth of a child, Isn't it amazing how when you have children, especially raising them in a wicked environment, you sense the need to get spiritual? Not bad. You sober up. You realize, oh my goodness, this is the environment my child's going to be raised in. These are the values they're going to be exposed to. I better get me to church and put that little boy in Sunday school. Be careful, though. You can't pass on what you don't have. 
You have to have a relationship with God yourself and a desire yourself because if you try to just pawn it off on the child, he'll see hypocrisy. Kids are good at spotting that really quick. But he walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Now here's the only break in the book in the chapter that says, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then we come to Enoch, and he didn't die. It says, he was not, for God took him. Again, Hebrews chapter 11, and I've marked it. I'll just read it to you. By faith, Enoch was taken away, so he did not see death. He was transferred, the word could be translated, transferred He just was here one moment and in heaven the next, sort of like a rapture. On the earth, didn't die off the earth. The Bible predicts the event will take place in mass again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when the Lord comes back for his church, those who are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord will be translated, taken instantly into heaven. The rapture is that. Enoch walked with God. He was not God. Took him. Methuselah lived 187 years, begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. Imagine being the life insurance company that sold him his annuity. They had no idea how long this dude was going to hang out. It's the longest, this is the oldest guy in the Bible, 969 years. But it says he died. Now, you should know something. It says in the book of Jude, I'm going to make this quick. Enoch proclaimed judgment and prophesied judgment to his generation. Preached to them of coming judgment. Now, how did he do that? The only guess I can come up with is in the name of his son Methuselah, which means when translated, when he is dead, it shall be sent. Or it could be translated, his death shall bring it. When he is dead, it shall be sent. If you were to do the chronology of his birth and the time of the flood when Noah was 600 years old, you discover that the year Methuselah died was the year the flood came. I mean, who else would, who would name his son? When he's dead, it shall be sent. What kind of a name is that? It's a pronouncement of judgment. He could see that the flood was coming. How could he see that? Well, when you walk close with God for 300 years, God tells you a few things. He named his son that, which, which would make being his parents a little precarious. Every time the kid got a cold or wanted to go out and play, oh my goodness, this could be it. All the neighbors, if they knew about it, would give him vitamins and take care of him. And Lamech lived 182 years, had a son, called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And he begot Noah. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years, had sons and daughters. All the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so we'll pick it up next time. Father, we thank you that Noah comes from a line of godly men and women who walked with you, who called upon your name, gathered for worship, called upon the name of Yahweh, knew there were certain truths that were imminent in their generation, and they did it by faith. So that in chapter 5 alone, we have two names recorded that are in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And one of them is Noah, and the other is Enoch. 
great examples for us of walking with you and trusting you and living by faith in the midst of a generation that doesn't. Lord, help us to raise our children in a way that pleases you. Give us, Lord, the awareness of the days in which we live. We are so thankful to see the very roots, the very history of the promise itself that the Messiah would come through the seed of the woman. And Father, we pray for those tonight who need your comfort. We pray, the Lord, that you'd grant it to them. Give them peace, strength. Thank you, Lord, for this congregation who loves you and loves your word. Reward them as they have sought you diligently and continue to do so. Bless their lives, Lord. And fill them with a sense of anticipation. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.